Welcome back to the 210th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including why you can be hopeful going into 2024. It has a climate change angle, so there may be a little bit of hope on that front if you are really concerned about that issue. Uh, Another one talking about uh, electric vehicle adoption. Are they forcing it too much? Is there a natural need for it? And then a conversation about the previous generation of social justice warriors and how they moved the movement forward. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So, as someone who has grown up in the generation that cares about the climate and uh, knows that there is a very active group of people out there that are going out and advocating for it. If you're part of my generation, how do you feel about the movement? If you're somebody that's been in this battle for a long time, do you feel like there's actual progress? I mean, obviously your ranks are growing, but does that mean things are actually changing? Are they changing fast enough for you? If you have any opinions about it, please throw them down in the comment section. I want to understand what the sentiment of some people are, because from where I'm standing, they've made a big leap, and it doesn't mean I'm all for every single thing that they talk about, and I think there are lots of other things that we could do in order to fix the problems that we're probably going to run into, but I want to hear everybody else's opinion on where they think it's going, because a lot of people seem to have a negative sentiment, and I liked when I was reading this article that does want to change a lot of stuff that I don't always agree with, but they have a positive take on it, and that's what I think we need, a positive message rather than a negative one. So, this article comes from the New Republic, and the headline reads, like I said earlier, how to be happy going in to 2024. And it's a relatively short article. It's not the... Sorry, the headline is actually hopeful, not happy. Uh, It's a pretty short article. It's nothing too, too crazy. But there are a few quotes that I want to read here. And this first one may sound like it's coming from a pessimistic point of view, but trust me, it is coming from an optimistic point of view. Quote, 21 species were finally, after much deliberation, declared extinct in the United States last year. Only 11 other species have been declared extinct in the prior half century. 2023 was the warmest year ever recorded for Earth's average temperature. Some researchers think 2024 could be worse. The Biden administration made $382 million worth when coming or when auctioning off oil drilling leases on December 20th, part of a record oil production on Democrats' watch. By the end of 2024, the country could be prepared for another Trump presidency, likely gutting environmental protections and re-withdrawing from the Paris Agreement. Which, okay, yeah, it is ironic, and I always find it funny. He pulled out of the Paris Agreement, Biden jumped back into the Paris Agreement, Trump's probably going to pull out again. It does honestly make you question how important these agreements are. If you can come in, get out, come in, get out, and how seriously people take them if it will change based on the administration. Now, some people will say that Donald Trump is the one that made it laughable because he pulled out and he said that, no, we will not commit to this, and therefore set a precedent where they're not going to take it that seriously depending on who's in office. Or you could say that because nobody took it seriously enough, Trump decided to pull out. I don't know which one it is. Uh, I honestly think Trump was just trying to set 
the beginning of his uh, term off in a way saying, no, we're going to focus on America first, which, uh, you know, that was part of his slogan. And this is one of those things where he's withdrawing from some of the international agreements that may not be in our favor. And he was trying to make a bold statement rather than trying to make a declaration about climate change in general. So it was very interesting to see this sort of thing brought up in the first paragraph. And I was like, okay, wow, they're going down a little bit of a pessimistic route here. But here is their bright spot. This is where they start to go a little bit positive. Quote, yet perhaps counterintuitively, an emerging theme in 2023 closed out and made way for 2024 was that of hope. Here's how bad climate change will get in the U.S. and why there's still hope. So he's actually quoting a headline from a Wired piece. And he goes on to talk about, quote, hope is a discipline, declared one Guardian headline published New York Eve, sorry, New Year's Eve, atop an interview with Nathan Barring, one of the young plaintiffs suing the U.S. government for having willfully ignored warnings about fossil fuels. The case was filed in 2015 and still hasn't gone to trial. And there's Hannah Ritchie's book, Not the End of the World, being released next week to notable press interests. Richie argues in interviews in the New York Times and The Guardian this week that, quote, while it has been an incredibly bad year, quote, we've made more progress than we sometimes acknowledge on climate change and reframing existential dread as, quote, how can I try to contribute to accelerating good outpacing the bad may be more productive. And this is something I 100% agree with from Richie's point of view which is if you have a fatalistic perspective on it, some people are motivated by the fear of something. They are, oh, okay, the world is going to end. We're going to lose a lot of the natural water sources that we have. We're going to be dealing with crop blights. We're going to lose a lot of our food sources across the world. These sort of fear moments really can push certain people to go out and do it. Other people, it will dissuade them. They'll say, oh, well, okay, if it's going to end anyway, why why even try? I'm going to enjoy every moment I got here rather than going out of my way and being inconvenienced. And whether you agree or disagree with either of those perspectives, those are legitimate perspectives people have. And I think the better perspective is to acknowledge that it's going to happen because you, you kind of you have to be out there and say, okay, there's something going on here. And even if you don't agree that it's 100% human or if it's even 90% human, 75% human, it doesn't even matter, in my opinion. If there are noticeable trends and we have some sort of analysis saying the Earth is warming up, whether it's us or the climate itself, we still need to come up with mitigating factors to deal with the consequences of the changing of the climate. So acknowledging that's going to happen and saying, hey, this could be something that is uh, bad for us, but we can come out of it on top. We can move forward and do things better. Having a mix of those two, it doesn't completely dissuade the people who think of it right now as existential and they're just going to give up because it's so, so uh, dissuasive in order to believe that everything's going to end, but also appealing to the people who need hope, who need an aspiration, who feel as though it is not pointless. And I understand the argument from some people that, if you give people hope, if you say that there is a possibility that we'll get out of it, if you give the mentality that, hey, we can fix it, then it is easier for people to say, oh, okay, we're going to fix it. So I'm not going to be reliable on this one. Someone actually told me an interesting statistic the other day, which is 
when you they do a test of people calling doing like calls of help. So they're, they talk to their friends about something they're dealing with that it's a, it's a serious, genuine call for help. When you do it one-on-one, you're going to get that immediate response or you're more likely to get a response. You go up to two people and they, the two people know, like you put it out in a group chat, and the two people know the other person's there, then the assumption is, oh, the other person will handle it. And as you go up in numbers, the assumption is, oh, somebody else will handle it. So yes, I do understand the argument that if you give hope, uh, people will just say, oh, okay, there are activists out there doing the work. There are other people out there doing the work, and uh, that will dissuade them from doing their part. But my other point is there are activists out there doing the work. There are people who are really conscious about this because it is a cultural issue. It is a defining generational issue as well, and there are people who are genuinely concerned enough to pick up the slack for other people with rapid innovation, uh, technology changes, activism on the government side or in the world stage. Let's be clear, I don't think government or multinational interest groups should be influencing governments and forcing things down among the populace. I think it should be a ground-up kind of movement. But yes, I understand that I'm not going to get my way on that one. The activism system is already in place there. So we know that there are already groups that do this. So having a hopeful message is actually going to get a few more people who will not, and having a mix of that fearful message as well, having a little bit of both, will activate as many people as possible. The people that will say, oh, okay, we have hope. Other people are dealing with it. The people that are completely dissuaded by fear, you're trying to limit those as much as possible, appeal to the middle, and look forward in a positive direction. And that's what I love about this last perspective. It really is, quote, how can I contribute to the accelerating the good, outpacing the bad? What positive things can I do? Because if you give people a hopeful message and then you can say you can contribute to that hope on an individual level, you can contribute and make things better for your kids, for uh, people across the world and other continents and other countries, then I feel like it would resonate more with me that way rather than, oh, existential fear. Then again, the fear would also apply to me a little bit too. It's a little bit of a mix there. And that's probably why I'm saying appeal with a mix. Maybe that's just exactly what they need to talk to me with. And maybe that won't work with everybody. But I've talked to a lot of people about climate change. And I've met many mixed opinions, whether fear is necessary to compel people to go out there and change or having aspirations, having a goal that we can reach I think that's also something that a lot of people agree with. But let's be clear. I will say there are more people that are on the fear side, but I've more recently met some people on the hope side, and it it makes me hopeful as well. And I think with a hopeful message, it can resonate more with people because all we've really gotten is the fear message so far. So maybe we should just try the hope message out, and if it doesn't work, well, then you can go back to advocating however you want, and I'm going to keep using the hope message because it does resonate with some people. It may not just work on a mass scale for mass mobilization. So, you know, to each his own, but don't go into 2024 with so much environmental dread. And that's coming from the New Republic. That's not coming from a uh, new source who leans conservative. That is one that leans pretty progressive sometimes and definitely left most of the time. So you take that as you will coming from them. So let's jump to our second article. That comes from the Washington Examiner. So we were kind of on the progressive left side, and now we have gone on the other, in the other direction. We have gone to a conservative outlet. And this is also about environmental issues. It's an article about EV cars and 
how the market isn't necessarily there yet and how the government's trying to force our hand as consumers. And the headline reads, Wants to increase electric vehicle adoption? Try attracting consumers. And to be fair, there have been lots of subsidies or different grants or uh, tax breaks that have been in place for buying EV vehicles. And that is something that goes along that does entice consumers in order to come in and purchase those cars. But there are still a lot of downsides for the people that haven't gotten into this game yet. They haven't gotten the EV. And let's be clear, I'm one of those people, mainly because I can't afford it. And even then, I... I would have been on board a while ago. I, I don't know now. I'm a little bit more hesitant just because we've seen more. As more have gone on the road, we've seen more of the talk about how the infrastructure is not necessarily uh, there yet. So it may be a little bit of a catch-22 as well. But I, I am considering it, but not necessarily fully on board yet. And trust me, those tax subsidies or those tax breaks are definitely, definitely something that I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about purchasing in an electric car. So that's enough ranting on me. Let's get into the uh, author's perspective here. Quote, the House of Representatives recently gave the public the gift of consumer choice when it passed the Choice in Automobile Retail Sales Act, known as the Cars Act. Um, I'm going to pause. I, I hate, I absolutely hate these cutesy little names. Oh, we're going to make an abbreviation. Oh, we're going to make it sound cutesy. No, come on. Okay, you are in the game of public relations. I do get it. I really understand. It makes it easy for people to remember. They don't have to remember all of the other small stuff. And you get to pretend that you're clever. But just have something out there that tells me what it is. And you may be thinking, well, what about the Inflation Reduction Act? That wasn't named anything really cute. The CHIPS Act was named something very cute. But the Inflation Reduction Act... Um, no, the Inflation Reduction Act was not named after what it did. If you wanted to name a bill, just just as it is, you want to say uh, Consumer Choice in Automobiles or EV Choice Act. There you go. Look at that. It doesn't have to make an abbreviation. It gets the point across. No problem. And yes, I do understand that maybe this is more widely applying than just EVs, but they're definitely targeting a lot of these EV mandates across the country. So literally just call it the EV Consumer Choice Bill or something like that. I hate these little abbreviations. It just it frustrates me if you cannot tell. Quote, imagine that people can decide the size, practicality, and performance of what they can afford to buy and use. Oh, wow. That's, that sounds really nice. I wonder if that's what the free market... Uh, you know, I've been hearing some rumblings about that. Is that what the free market's about? Is that what that thing is? You know, I might be on board with that. Quote, the bill should stop the Environmental Protection Agency from implementing extreme regulations on emission standards for our automobiles and thwart politicians who believe the best way to promote the wider adoption of electric vehicles is by banning the sale of gas-fueled vehicles. So remember when the California news came out that they were going to stop allowing sellers to sell cars that emit have any emissions by 2035? Well, that is what they're trying to block here with the CARS Act. And, you know, I may take a step back on the cutesy acronyms. I don't like them, but it does make it easy to say the CARS Act. Look at that. Maybe that's exactly why, because we have really small memories and we need to fit a whole bunch in there nowadays with the amount of stuff that gets bombarded at us. 
But remember when California put that bill into place. This is exactly what the federal government, which is weird that the federal government is actually interjecting for more individual rights and than the state governments are. But they're trying to stop these sort of things so people can still choose what kind of car they want. I think that California's law is stupid. I understand the reason that they want to do it, but I think it is absolutely idiotic. Not just because the joke is going around, oh, they don't have the infrastructure in place in order to support our, all those cars. In an ideal world, they'll have it by 2035. So you could try to you know, rub that, throw it off the back, and that could be a counter-argument, which very well could be true. I find it hard to believe unless they completely do an overhaul and rely more on nuclear energy or you know, start having a really large spending on different renewable sources because they get a lot of their energy and water from other states at this point. But beyond that, you as a consumer can buy whatever you want. I know there are certain regulations on certain things, 100%, and most of those are not necessarily regulations for the betterment of society, but for the betterment of you. You can't or should not be allowed to purposely buy spoiled meat or products like that. It's kind of a little bit different than outright banning spoiled meat. It's actually the FDA putting in certain uh, standards that people have to meet so that the seller doesn't sell you something bad. But the idea is still for your safety that these regulations are in place, which I still think there could be an argument out there made, which is if companies are selling spoiled meat, people won't buy them. Or if they see the working conditions, like in those uh, terrible newspaper uh, photos back in the day where I can't remember it was which meat packing plant it was, but they had, uh, I think it was either photos or videos, and they said, okay, hey, no, uh, these t conditions are absolutely horrific, and that's when the FDA actually got started up. I believe it was in the 30s or 40s. But I think there could even be an argument, especially in this day and age where information gets disseminated so quickly, that you could actually remove the FDA, and people could put out information about, okay, this company is not ethically treating its animals. This company has terrible processing plants that uh, aren't keeping up with the standards we want. Oh, they're actually shortchanging the type of cow. They're, it's not fatty enough when they're claiming it's a, a ribeye cut. It's actually a New York strip cut. This information could get around very quickly on the internet, and therefore it could actually balance the asymmetry of information that the seller had back in the day versus the buyer, and the consumer can say, no, we don't want to buy it anymore. But guess what? If the FDA comes in and says, okay, no, hey, sellers, you have to sell this, the consumer doesn't even have that choice anymore, which in that case you could argue is a good thing. But the same thing when another government agency, a state agency, comes in and says, no, you can no longer buy this thing, no matter if it's better for you, no matter if you have a preference for it, if you have a preference for really fatty ribeye and, you know, it comes from a place that's a little bit less sanitary, but you really like fatty ribeye and you're willing to pay for it, then you, I think you should be able to do that. If you want a gas or diesel car and you don't want to deal with an EV car, you don't want to especially deal with all the different technology and software that comes with it. Maybe you're an analog. You don't want to have to worry about all this software implementation. Also, the possibility that all that software could be corrupted by uh, somebody who wants to hack your car. I know it's a really oddball thing, but also the amount of information and data tracking that happens in all cars nowadays. Maybe you want to buy an old car, like a 1999 car before all these different tracking mechanisms and GPSs were in the car. By California's law, and let's be clear, they are saying new cars, 
But you could very easily expand that later on saying, well, no, we're not going to sell any cars that allow any sort of emissions after a while. And by the time you're at 2035 anyway, most of the cars are going to have that kind of GPS tracking. And, you know, that is the paranoid person inside me. But I know people that have said, I don't feel comfortable buying newer cars with all this, uh, you know, shut off switch and everything, whether or not all those stories are 100 percent true. The idea is in there that with all this electricity, electronics that are integrated into our cars nowadays, there's a lot more things that can go wrong besides just the mechanics. And when you switch to an entirely EV system, that is something that you have to consider. Also, do you want to uh, be paying the premium on battery replacements? Do you want to be dealing with any other side effects that come with EV cars? The lack of charging stations currently. Maybe they'll have the infrastructure in the future for it. Maybe they won't. It's just all these different things. There are plenty of reasons not to want to buy something. And that means, right now, the cost for some people, it definitely outweighs the benefit of buying that car. If you really want people to buy those cars, limit the cost and continue to grow the benefits. And there you go. They'll create a natural transition within the market rather than government mandating the way that you have to live your life. Imagine, my, okay, I want to take it to its logical extreme. I do this very often, and it is definitely saying, oh, it's a slippery soap fallacy, or it's applying to different fallacies. I just want you to put a hypothetical in your mind here. If they're allowed to dictate what cars you're allowed to buy, that is one of the most essential pieces of most of human life nowadays within the United States. You need a car to get around to places. You need a car to go to work. You need a car to go to the grocery store, to pick up your kids. You need a specific type of car to do specific activities as well. So they can mandate what type of car you buy. Well, what stops them from saying, oh, well, you can't have uh, this type of car. You're going to have this type of car that actually is going to benefit society, just like you know, limiting emissions is going to benefit society. It would benefit society if this car in its downtime isn't just sitting in your driveway, but it's out there. Uh, doing a taxi service like Tesla talks about all the time. Well, if you schedule your car saying, oh, yeah, I go into work from 9 to 5, I can walk to lunch. So, yeah, you can just have it out there 9 to 5, and then an emergency happens and your car's not there. You're going to have to rent out a car from somewhere else. So these sort of things, it's not that far of a logical leap to say once you dictate what kind of car you can buy, the next logical leap is, oh, well, you know, that sort of, and especially when the justification is for the collective, for the society, beyond the individual, then anything can be justified for the society. Anything can start to be justified for the collective. And just because this is a popular issue, it doesn't mean it'll be a popular issue in the future. It doesn't mean there won't be another popular issue that could violate other people's sovereignty, their individuality. And yes, I said sovereignty like a nation, but their individuality it's just one of those questions where at what point do we give up what we want? You give up your right to do as you please with your money in a free market economy. At what point do we give that up for the collective? At what point do we allow the government to infringe upon our ability to use our money as we see fit? They already take money in taxes. Yes, I understand that we all opt into this government system and we give taxes to make sure that it stays alive. It does Social Security. It does all these other programs. I am not an anarchist by any means. But at what point are you okay with them truly mandating the way that you live your life? Because I don't want people around me to do that. And then to have someone who's five steps removed from me, even if it's a state government, three steps removed from me, come on. No, I, I don't want to see that. So...
that's just my little rant on that one. I went really long. Uh, the other thing they talk about here is there's actually another EV ban going for uh, Virginia right now, which is the, I don't live in Virginia anymore. I actually live in Kentucky, but you know, Virginia is my, my, my home baby state. And when I heard about that, I hadn't heard any news about it at all. So I was kind of surprised, honestly, and maybe I need to be checking up on these sort of things because they seem to be passing some of these bills on the sly. So that's enough with this one. Let's jump to our last article. And the headline for this one reads, Today's Social Justice Warriors Stand on the Shoulders of Boomers. And uh, this comes from LGBTQ Nation. And to be honest, this, this headline really did catch me. So when you hear about the activists nowadays, a lot of them are out there saying, hey, we're, we're doing our own thing. Some people do acknowledge the sacrifice of the past. And some people say, hey, the generations before us didn't do enough about this. And this author is saying, no, that is not true. The reason I want to point out, bring up this kind of thing is, one, we need to make sure that we always acknowledge the people that came before us, not only to not forget what they did, but also to make sure that we repeat the good lessons that they learned and do not repeat the bad mistakes that they made. Just like there are conservative activists who have been pushing for pro-life things. They made certain mistakes in their messaging. They came back to bite them in the butt. They eventually got their pro-life win. Just like there are gay rights activists. Just like there are state sovereignty activists. There are uh, Texit, I guess is what you would call it nowadays, but uh, Texas secession activists. There are a whole bunch of activists who have been pushing for what they believe is right. And we all, if you are a person out there who... I was going to say that if you're an activist, but no, not even if you're an activist. If you're a person that lives in this society, the draft is gone because of anti-war activists. Uh, different programs that we may find may have been reprehensible in the past are gone because of certain activists who got out there and made their voices heard. And we need to acknowledge all of them, whether or not you agree with everything they're saying. I do not agree with all of the social justice. Well, actually, I take it back. I don't agree with most, if not all of the social justice agenda, but I do think it's important, this person's perspective, which is we stand on the shoulders of giants, and to pretend that we don't, and to pretend that there weren't people that came before us that laid down the path for us, is arrogant, and we need to be more humble. For all the people that sacrificed their lives to protect our freedom, that's one way you could look at it. For all the people that sacrificed their jobs to go out and be an activist for what they believed was right, to push back against government coming into our lives and affecting us in ways that we don't want to. We have to recognize we stand on their shoulders. So here is the perspective of the author, who is a boomer who was an activist back in the day. Quote, from where did the driving force and passion come from the Black Panther Party, the Young Lords, the American Indian Movement, the Congress, sorry, Congress of Racial Equity, Second Wave Feminism, the, non, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the Frame Farm Workers Movement, the Free Speech Movement, the F Peace Movement, Students for Democracy uh, of Society, the Gay Liberation, Gay Activist Alliance, Trans Liberation, Raci radical lesbians, disability rights movement, AIDS activism, the patients' rights movement, the environmental movement, the organizers of Earth Day, the anti-nuke and anti-fossil fuel movement, and so many others. That's right, from boomers. And this is really just her, her rant coming in and saying, remember, 
just because you're taking up the mantle doesn't mean that this thing existed before we came about. And even then, there were different versions of the movement. The second wave feminism, that was born out of first wave feminism, which was born out of women's suffrage. Uh, we were looking at the environmental movement that was born out of uh, multiple different Malthusian sort of movements as well. Uh, the AIDS activism came out of vaccine activism. Like there, there are so many different movements that have built up to this. And to really know your history, to be in-depth on all these different movements, or at least have some understanding of them, because not only are they movements where you can see how to affect change in the future, because you've seen how people have done it in the past, but also because it allows you to glean the history of the United States. And what I think is beautiful about the United States is we are moving forward. We have a union that is not necessarily perfect, but we have a federalist system where we can push in different areas and different places. We are always living up to the values of the Constitution. And that's important because those values that were outlaid in that document, they have kept us on a track of improvement. And we can always keep improving. I, I think there will be a point, maybe sometime in the future, where it's as good as we're going to get, and maybe we have to dissolve it to get something better. But we can always keep improving under that framework of the Constitution and all of these movements, whether or not you agree with them, I don't agree with all of them either, these movements have allowed people to express what they believe fall underneath the values of the Constitution and we should always be proud that we have a system that allows people to speak their minds, speak their peace, and make sure that it is going to be better for the next generation of people just like them, better for the next generation of people just like you and me. And that is one of the beauties of the American system. Imagine trying to do that in communist China. Imagine trying to do that in Russia right now if you don't agree with the war, trying to have an anti-war movement. No, okay? Like I said, you don't have to agree with it to understand the beauty of it. All right, so with all that said, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Parade Pets. Headline reads, Pet Raccoon Playing With Bubbles is Too Happy For Words. And honestly, they, they do give some good advice here, which is don't take in uh, a, I don't want to say hostile raccoon, but don't take in a wild raccoon. You got to find very specifically domesticated raccoons. But when you do, they are absolutely hilarious. Quote, in the video, Benny's mom is blowing bubbles and he's reaching out with his tiny hands to pop them. Eventually, he decides that his hands aren't quite enough and he starts opening his mouth and trying to catch them. It, he just can't catch them fast enough. The entire ordeal really reminds me of a little kid. Uh, end quote. So if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of Benny, or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine. And down there is the Twitter handle, at your daily flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, kind of off the top of the dome, not necessarily as formal, less quotes. It's just, hey, I'm reading something, want to throw it out there, or something happened that I thought was interesting, and we kind of want to dissect it. So with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.